privilege to bring the word of God to you and to be with you in this place where God's people meet to bring worship to him. I want to ask you to turn in your Bible now, please, if you would, to the book of the Psalms and to Psalm 25. Psalm 25, I'm going to be reading for us the first seven verses. I'll read the passage and pray very briefly, and then we'll enter into it. If you're there and prepared, then I will read. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Father, again, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to hear it read and now to hear it preached, proclaimed and applied. And Lord, we do so with a very keen sense of waiting upon your blessing for apart from you, truly, Lord, we can do nothing. And so grant us your kind presence and blessing and favor through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Do you like to read the Psalms? Read them regularly? Certainly a lot of God's people do. And we love the Psalms. Why do we love the Psalms? Well, I think one of the reasons that we love the Psalms is because they are so much like us. Or we are so much like them. The things that we find there, we find in our lives. The thing we find in our lives, we often find there. For example, through the Psalms, we hear about conflicts that the psalmist may be in. Well, we have conflicts, don't we? They understand us. They get us. We read in the Psalms about fears. They're afraid. Well, we have fears, don't we, from time to time. And so we read the Psalms with feeling or discouragement. They get down sometimes. I mean, way down where the only thing they can see is darkness. Well, we get down, don't we, sometimes? I mean, way down. So we can identify with them and they can identify with us. And so we like the Psalms. We we can read them with that feeling, with that appreciation. But I think there's another reason why we should at least like the Psalms and maybe why some of you, in fact, do like the Psalms. And that's because we love them because we know Jesus Christ is in them. I mean, any portion of Scripture, Christ is going to be there, if you will. And we know that he's certainly in the Psalms. This is the written word of God. He's the living word of God. There's no separation in that regard. And we know that he is here because, for one thing, he's told us this is where he is. 
You know, when you look at the end of, I believe, what's what? The Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his followers and some of his closing thoughts with them that everything that has been written about him in the scriptures and in the law of Moses, in the prophets and in the Psalms, that's where we are. Those things written in there must be fulfilled. We know Christ is there because he said that he's there. And when we look at the life of Christ in the Gospels, we see often references to the son of David. And again, there's that overlapping. You know, is it the literal son of David? Is it the greater son of David? How does the Lord say to my Lord, sit at my feet and all those kinds of things. So we know that Jesus Christ is here. And that's the best reason to love the Psalms, honestly. Yes, they get us. Yes, they understand us. And yes, they present Christ to us. So let me put the two together and say we love the Psalms because in the Psalms there is Christ who explains our life of faith in Christ as to what we have, what we expect, what we will encounter and so forth with his presence because our life follows after his life. And we're in Christ and being in Christ means, well, yeah, we find ourselves there. And we find ourselves there in the Lord Jesus himself. And so who could not but love the Psalms as we do? I've chosen in particular this part of the 25th Psalm, which uh, you might have a footnote in your text. I do have it in this that says that this Psalm is an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? It's taking the letters of the alphabet and in this case, beginning each verse with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. As if we would do A, B, C, they would do their Hebrew alphabet. Now, technically, every Hebrew letter in the alphabet is not found in the psalm, but most of them are. Some of them are used a couple of times. Others are left out, but it's an acrostic. Why? Because the Holy Spirit said, that's what I'm going to do. Why? I don't know beyond that, but that's what we have. And one thing that I could surmise, and this is simply a guess, is that kind of structure helps us to remember and to memorize. If I say animals, bats, and coast, and I say ABC, you can say animals, bats, and coast. It helps to memorize. And so it's a device. Was that why they did it? I don't know for sure. But I just know that it's there. It doesn't come out in the English, however. Charles Spurgeon says that Psalm 25, it's basically made up of two elements, the entire psalm. Two elements, two very simple elements. Prayer and meditation. Made up of two elements, so we have the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Prayer and meditation. Okay, not to quibble with Mr. Spurgeon's, all of his genius and ability, but I would say, let it be made up of one element. Prayer-meditation, because they are so closely related, I can't separate one from the other. When I pray, I meditate, and when I meditate, I want to pray. So may I suggest to you, as we meditate on Psalm 25, may you find yourself praying, and God's purposes will be well served as we look at the psalm. We're going to do it under two headings here this afternoon as we look at these first seven verses in particular. We're going to look at the person of faith 
And then secondly, we're going to look at the petitions of faith. There I've used a little bit of alliteration. Person, petitions. The person of faith. Right from the very beginning, you notice that I read of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. From the very beginning, we have the presenting of a person to us. That's human, right? But immediately the human brings us into the divine. Of David to you, O Lord. Right off the bat, there's something that's going to happen between the human and the divine. Between a man and God. Fellowship. Prayer. Communion. Connection. How do you get to who are very, very, in fact, infinitely different from one another, how do you get them together? How do you get the human and the divine to associate? How do you get them to fellowship and communicate and so on and so forth? What is it? Well, of course, we know ultimately that answer is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ is present here. He's the one who brings the two together because we are so very different. We're human and he's divine. And yet we find fellowship with him in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is the God man. Some have said he is so much man as though he were never God. He is so much God as though he were never man. And yet he is two natures, but in one person. That is the mystery of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. But without him, we would have no communion or fellowship or be able to pray in a way that is accepted by God, but through Jesus Christ. And we have all the New Testament to tell us what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Have you ever thought about, you know, we, we very strongly and very much believe that when we pray, we should pray and we use that prepositional phrase, in the name of Jesus. Almost every single prayer you hear prayed in the church or that you pray ends with, we pray in Jesus, in Jesus' name or something to that fashion, right? Right? We're taught that is the correct way to pray through the mediation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But have you ever thought how many times do you find that exact phrase used in the New Testament in prayer? It's seldom. Did they not pray in the name of Jesus? Oh, they most certainly did. And they understood what it was to pray in the person, in the work, in the power and in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But they didn't always distill it down to a simple prepositional phrase. You follow what I'm saying there? So you don't necessarily sin if you don't tack on that phrase, but using that phrase communicates very clearly, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And here you have the two meeting together. Jesus has to be here for us New Testament saints to pray and be heard. And so, let's look at this. We look at this first on the human side, if you will, because the psalm begins of David. 
Why a lot of people, when they read Scripture, they leave off that little caption at the top? I don't know. Some Bible versions don't even put that little phrase in there, of David. Anybody have a Bible that doesn't have that little phrase at the top there? As far as I know, that's part of the inspired Word of God. Why it would be left out in some versions is a mystery to me. I don't know. But here we have it, of David. That gives us a little bit of the context of the psalm. Something about David. Uh, Reading through it, some people think, well, this is taken out of the life of David towards the latter end of his life. He's kind of looking back and he can kind of see, you know, his track record and things that have come out of that. And in particular, he had a wayward son, caused him a lot of grief. That son of his, Absalom, was a bit of a scoundrel and a usurper. He came nipping at his own father's heels. He started basically an insurrection to take over, if you will. And it seems like, possibly, can't say with certainty, these are the kind of things that maybe David is wrestling with in this prayer. David very well could be an older and therefore hopefully a wiser man of faith. He's been around the block a few times and he knows that he doesn't have to give a knee-jerk reaction to everything that happens in life, but the simplicity of, of his faith would take him to his Lord and say, O Lord, to you I lift up my soul. How many times do we hear that in the scripture? The saints are making a beeline. It's a beaten path. There's no grass or weeds that would ever grow on that pathway because they trod it so frequently. It's all matted down because they time and time again go to the Lord and lift up their soul. That's what faith does. Faith and prayer are the way of life. Wash Rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. And so we pray. We pray without ceasing. And we hear David here yet once again. Is that what we do? We know it's what we should do. Time and time again. You know, the default setting of faith is prayer. And I want to tell you, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. And it ain't broke. So the default setting of faith is communion with God in prayer. So we know here the person of faith. We know him by name of David. And secondly, we know him by his focus by the focus of his faith, which is, of course, none other than simply the Lord to you. Verse one, O Lord. I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust. Have you noticed it's kind of a funny thing, but we do not go to people we don't trust to entrust things to them. I mean, if you do, you're really foolish. Not that we haven't done that, but to whom do we go? We go to the people in whom we have confidence, of course. Would you watch my cat while we're gone? Because we know our daughter or grandson will come over and take care of it. We don't ask somebody off the street. Oh, by the way, if you don't have anything to do, could you come by? Here's the key to the house. Come in. Who does David trust? It is you, O Lord, in you I trust. We go to the ones we trust. Who more do we trust? 
than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so David says, it is to the God that I trust that I say to him, O Lord, I lift up my soul. As I was looking at this, I was beginning to think, how is prayer pictured for us in the scripture? In other words, if you were an artist and you're going to paint a picture, you're commissioned. Okay, your commission is paint a picture of prayer. What's that picture going to look like? Well, we have many, many choices in the scripture. And one of the words that is often used is the word lift. Here, David says, I lift, I lift my soul. Later, or not later, but in other portions of the scripture, it says that the person lifted their face or lifted their eyes or lifted their hands. In other words, there are bodily gestures that are connected with the spiritual activity of prayer. The lifting of the hands is like the evening sacrifice. You mean if I simply raise up my hands and that's... Well, that stands, of course, for prayer. It's a motion. It's an activity of prayer. We know the man of faith here because of his expression of that faith. As he says, I lift up my soul. He doesn't say my eyes. He doesn't say my faith. He doesn't say my hands. He says my soul, something you can't see. You can see my eyes, you can see my face, and you can see my hands. David went right to the very marrow of it, if you will, and he says, it's here that I lift up there. You know, we talk about sometimes, and maybe you've said this about yourself, about going through the motions. We use that phrase, people are just going through the motions. Their behavior, their activity is correct, But you know, you know, it ain't there. They're just acting. And I will tell you in the ministry, and Brother Ben's probably met a few. If not, you will, brother. Met a few people who are good actors at playing church. They can put on a good face. They can say good words. They can have their activities and they can sing the loudest in the church. Pray the loudest, speak the loudest, and be the most devilish. Because they're only going through the motions. David gets right down into it. What the Lord himself sees is the soul and the spirit. And David says, it's my soul, O Lord, that I lift up to you because I trust you. The lifting up of the soul. Now, when we lift up our soul in prayer, how high do you have to lift it? If you're on earth and God's in heaven, how high do you have to lift it? you got to lift it all the way, I guess, don't you? If I have something that I want to reach, but I can't reach it, you know what I do? I get a ladder. And then I can reach whatever it is that I'm wanting to reach. It's like a Jacob's ladder. That we must have to reach. Read about Jacob's ladder. You know the base of it was on the earth. The top of it was in heaven. And angels were doing this. And Jesus talks. And he says you're going to see the son of man. Ascending and descending. In the gospel of John. Guess what? 
What is that ladder? Is that a climbing device for short people to reach high things? What is that Jacob's ladder? That Jacob's ladder is Jesus. The one who came down and descended is the one who went up and ascended. Now in Christ, I can reach the hand and the face of the Father. Prayer is climbing Jacob's ladder. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Without him, I'm going nowhere. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And in Jesus, that's exactly what we can and what we must do, is to lift up our soul. Are you that person of faith? Are you that man of faith, climbing the ladder, the woman of faith, the boy or the girl of faith, who trusts in the Lord, and therefore that default setting of your faith is always to go to him like a David. O Lord, to you, I lift up my soul. And so having looked at then simply the person of faith, let's look at the petitions of faith. And they come in the next verses, beginning in verse down through verse 7 then, the petitions of faith. And what I'm going to show and give here, three simple, ongoing, always needed petitions that God's people make. And it's exemplified in David. And those three petitions involve this, deliverance, instruction and guidance, forgiveness. Three simple petitions, deliverance, instruction and guidance, forgiveness. Now, so happens that those three petitions that are here in the first uh, seven verses of the psalm are the very same things that we find in the Lord's model prayer. Did he not teach us in the model prayer to pray this way? Deliver us from evil. That's deliverance, obviously. Did he not teach us, lead us not into temptation? That's guidance. Did he not teach us, forgive us our debts? And so the things that we're praying for, that David is going to pray for, and that God's people pray for routinely, are the things that the Lord has already told us to pray about, as we have it in the model prayer. And it so happens that those are the very things and the very blessings that we already have in Jesus Christ. We have in Jesus Christ, we have deliverance. He's delivered us from this present evil age. In Jesus Christ, we have instruction and guidance. He is our great teacher. We have forgiveness. It's the blood of Jesus that forgives us from, or cleanses us from all of our sins. So these are things that we already have, things for which Jesus tells us to continue to pray that David prays for here as that man of faith. Let's look at the petitions. Number one. He prays for deliverance. Verses two and three. Oh, my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And then if you go down way down to verse 20, he says, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Praying for deliverance. We can pray for deliverance because we have a gracious Savior who saves us from, 
who delivers us. Delivers us from what? Well, troubles come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. There are all kinds of colors, just a humongous variety that seems to know no end. Uh, In the psalm, David names a few of the troubles from which he must be praying for deliverance. For example, he begins by saying his enemies need deliverance from the enemy, right? Later in the psalm, he talks about the net that has been set to ensnare or trap him. He prays about loneliness and affliction, part of his troubles. He prays about heart troubles, struggles that he has inwardly. Well, for good measure, we could say fear and guilt and confusion. They're also present there. Anything you want to throw into the potpourri here of all the troubles? And it really doesn't matter what the troubles are. Every day has enough of its own. We don't have to go looking for us. They seem to always be able to find us quite easily. But pray for them regarding deliverance. Now, did you notice that the way David does that, down the last part of verse 2 and into verse 3, is he uses the wording of shame. He says, let me not be put to shame. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. He talks about deliverance in connection with shame. Deliver me, as it were, Lord, from shame. What is shame? When you hear the word shame, what do you think of? I think a lot of people, when they hear the word shame, think of embarrassment. You know, I'm ashamed my kid said that. I'm ashamed that I acted this way. Maybe you got a blush on your face, you know. Oh, I can't believe it. That's not really the biblical concept of shame. The biblical concept of shame is not just that since of that embarrassment, but it's more a sense of disappointment, of disgrace, of being disillusioned. And he talks about this deliverance in the context of, Lord, take me out of or prevent me from experiencing this disillusionment, this disappointment of life. It's the kind of thing that a young guy would get, and I hope This never happened to anybody here. But shame is the kind of thing that would be experienced when a young man, doesn't have to be young, but a young man, older man, whatever, says to the love of his life, dear, would you marry me? And she goes, uh, um, can I get back to you on that? That man is shamed. He's dumbfounded. He is disillusioned. I thought she'd jump for joy. That's what we're talking about here. David says, oh Lord, don't let me be disappointed. Don't let me be disillusioned. I'm putting my faith in you. Where is that going to take me? Oh Lord, may it not be into the disappointment that the world seems to have without end. Notice, I I thought this was great. He says, he makes a petition of it. Let me not be put to shame. That's his petition. And then by the time he gets down to verse 3, 
that that petition of the Lord is turned into a statement. He says, don't let me be put to shame. And then he says, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Now, admittedly, some other versions uh, of the Bible, like King James, New King James, what have you, they translate that as also as a, as a request. Lord, may none of us who put our trust in you be put to shame. But the ESV states that just that. It's a statement. It's a fact. If you put your trust in him, there ain't no shame in Christ that's going to come your way. Because faith in Jesus Christ, trust in the living God, and the shame that I spoke of by way of the disappointment and disillusionment cannot coexist. It's a statement. There is no shame to those who wait upon the Lord. You see, that's a gospel promise. Paul would write in Romans, as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's not a question. That's not a command. That's a statement. Again, he says in Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's not a request. That is an indicative. That is a fact. That is a statement. Are you in Christ? Then there is no shame. David is praying for this very thing that we have already in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have it? Because the scripture tells us that Christ has already dealt with the shame. Not that it didn't exist, but he's already answered it. He's already responded to that disgrace and humiliation and degradation at the cross because it was Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's already dealt with. It's already answered. It's already given. It's already there. And so what that means is we pray for things that we already have. Is that kind of strange? Well, I'll answer that in a second here. No, it's not. But that's what he does as the man of faith that he is. He prays for deliverance, that he not be disgraced and he will not be disgraced as you will not be disgraced in life. You know, when sometimes we want to encourage somebody, uh, maybe maybe they've had kind of a bad experience. Maybe they company had cutbacks. They lost their job. And man, he or she feeling really down in the dumps. And and you say, you know what? It's no shame to lose your job because the company uh, they couldn't they couldn't cut it anymore they had to go belly up there's no shame in, in what you're experiencing we want to encourage somebody right no shame in that hey it's no shame to tell your kids i love you hey it's no shame for you to tell your parents i love you it's no shame in following jesus christ it's no thing for us to be ashamed of of the gospel of jesus christ because it is that by which we're saved If he has no shame allowed for us in terms of disappointment with our confidence in him, why should we be ashamed of anything on the other side, going the other way? We can't be. We'll not be ashamed of Jesus and his word in this adulterous generation. We'll not be ashamed when we suffer as a Christian. We'll not be ashamed of the gospel of hope because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Lord, deliver us. Oh, he has and he will continue to deliver us as David prays for it here. 
Let us continue in the same way. Now, David, being as he is the person of faith, makes his petitions known to the Lord, beginning with that first of, O Lord, in you I trust, deliver me, let me not be brought into shame, I wait upon you. And secondly, and this comes to us in verses 4 and 5, he prays for instruction and guidance. He says, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you're the God of my salvation, for you I wait all day long. And then if you go down to verse 9, it says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble in his way. What's he praying for? To be instructed by the Lord so that he might thereby be guided by the Lord as well. See the words, especially there in verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, teach me and lead me. Instruction and guidance. I imagine there's some people sitting here this morning, or now it's afternoon, yeah, it's afternoon, isn't it? Who, uh, you didn't really like school. You didn't care too much for school. You weren't necessarily a good student. Maybe you didn't like the teacher's style. You didn't like the subject matter. Yeah, you and school weren't the best of friends. Education wasn't your thing. But since you got saved... The Lord enrolled you in the higher school of learning of the College of Christ. And we all became students all over again to be taught by the Lord. So as those who are educated in the things of God, we might be guided by that through all of our days. This is the thing for which David is praying. Lord, teach us and guide us. For this is exactly what we need. Notice in verse 4 that the way that David makes the request, he says, make me to know your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth. Key words are ways, paths, and truth. He says, make me to know your ways. You know, this has a one-for-one in the English language, from the Hebrew into the English language, because the word ways means road. We use that in our English language. A roadway, a highway, a freeway. Same thing. We get it. The word went on to mean from road to a trip or a journey that you would make on a road to then be The whole journey of life. See the progression? That's what David is praying for. Lord, I need to be instructed in your ways. Teach me so that then I would be guided in them. See there in verse 4b, he says, teach me your paths. The word path, we get it. We know what a path is. It's really a synonym for ways. Hard to tell the difference between the two. If Life were a roadmap. I'm still old school. I like AAA roadmaps. I like GPS too, but I like both of them. I love the hands-on roadmap. Lay it out and say, okay, life is on this map. Which way and what path am I going to take? I got a zillion choices. I don't know if they do that or not, but on the old GPS, as you program program in the place you want to go and it goes through all of its uh, its computations and it says you have 327,219 ways that you can go. Okay? I just want one. 
give me one way. And he'll give you the fastest way if that's what you're asking for. Now, the Lord is not telling us there are many ways to God. Take any path you want and you'll get there. There is only one way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But as we are on that one way, there are many different paths that he takes us down, many different, if you will, excursions, experiences of life with a tremendous amount of diversity. While some of you are over at the beaches having, on a really good day, wonderful time in the surf, then some of the others are over here in the desert where it's just... So hot, I can't believe it. We have all kinds of different things. So Lord, we pray, teach us and then guide us in the way in which you want us to go. Direct us, provide for us. And oh Lord, teach us your truth. What do you notice about these words? Waves, paths, truth. What do you notice about them? First two are plural. The third one is singular. Paths and ways and truth. Experiences of life are many, are plural. The truth of God is one, singular, cohesive, altogether, indivisible. Lord, teach us your truth. Is there ever a time in the world in which you have seen during your lifetime in which the truth of God is more needed than right now? As a compass to point north? As an anchor to keep the soul from drifting off? Oh my! In my 72 years, this is the time. Give us a compass to point north. Give us the anchor to hold our soul. Give us the unchangeable truth who is Jesus Christ. And those who do not know him, they are adrift. They are in a muck. They do not even understand who they are, where they've come from, or where they're going. They are poor, lost souls. Let us pray. Let us be like Jesus and seek that he himself will be the one to find and to save, as we heard earlier about this. The way... The path, the truth, the first two are many, and the last one is singular. Brothers and sisters, we always must have the anchor, the foundation of our faith, all of our faith resting solidly upon the revealed will of God. The clear, plain, unchangeable, inerrant, infallible word of God, the truth. I don't know if you know how blessed you are or not, but I want to tell you, you're a blessed people because every Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, you hear that word. I've listened to some of the sermons. You hear God's word. And now being one who doesn't preach so often, I get to be on the receiving end of the word. And you know, it's interesting that after all these Almost 45 years in ministry, I realize how much I need to hear the word of God, though I preach thousands of sermons. And every Lord's Day, I hear the pastor speak of Jesus, faith in him and his great work and his saving grace, his limitless love, his true righteousness. I hear all these things and I go, thank God. He instructs me. He guides me. Otherwise, I'd be lost. Wouldn't we? And so we pray. Now, we pray for what we already have, but we pray for it nonetheless. 
Why would we pray for things that we already have, that we have deliverance? We're already delivered from this present evil age. He does guide us and lead us. He said, you know, his spirit would abide with us and the spirit is, is going to guide and lead us into the truth. And we're going to get to forgiveness here in a second. Why would we pray for the things that we already have? You know, Jesus said something that right on the surface is a bit confusing. He said, to those who have, more will be given. But to those who do not have, even what they do have will be taken away from them. And we go, what kind of double talk is that? I don't get it. You have in your kitchen, probably lots of kitchen appliances. I have out of my workshop, lots of tools, power tools. I have them. You have them in your house. But they do no good just simply sitting there. They have to be put to use. Every once in a while for a power tool that I haven't used for a long time, I may actually have to get out the manual and read up how does this thing work now. I already have it, but I have to know how to use it and then put it into use. When we're taught to pray for the things that we already have, it's not that we, quote, get it all over again, but we're praying, Lord, the grace that you have given to me, now may it be put to the use for which that grace has been intended all along. And we keep it going and working, so to speak. We keep putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep making no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. We keep at it. We pray for things we already have. Does that make sense to you? And the third petition, which will be, of course, my final one here, is he prays for forgiveness. Verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then down in verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then in verse 18, he says, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Now, this is a man of faith who trusts in the Lord, and yet he's praying for forgiveness. What's that about? Are you praying for something he already has? Yes. And something he continues to need to receive. He does it in the first two verses 6 and 7 by way of remembrance. He says, remember, O Lord, something about yourself. And this is the foundation. This is the, this is the assurance and confidence that we have. It's in the Lord's steadfast love. Lord, remember your mercy, your steadfast love. Because it's been from of old. In other words, something about you, Lord, your steadfast mercy. It predates my sin by a long shot. It's been there a long time. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. And according to your steadfast love, remember me. Praying for forgiveness. By way of Lord, do not remember. That's kind of a peculiar thing there, isn't it? He says, remember not the sins of my youth. Some of us have a hard time remembering what we had for breakfast. But sometimes the most embarrassing, maybe I'm the only one here who does this. I have a momentary lapse of the name of my best friend. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. 
There it is. If I can't remember that, why should I be praying about things that happened decades ago? Remember not the sins of my youth. I thought those were already dealt with. Isn't that an old story? Doesn't need to be rewritten again? Why pray for something you already have? Well, you see, David and we, things in our life that have been in the past, for one, some of those things can have a way of hanging on. I know of a person before conversion conceived a baby with a person not his wife did not know about that conception until 40 years later and was told you have a 40 some year old child the consequences of a prior sin came back around many, many years later. It so happened this person handled it with extreme grace. Extreme grace. But see, sometimes the consequences can hang on for a long time. We have an 89-year-old woman at our church, and just a few weeks ago, she kind of rolled up her sleeve a little bit and said, here, see this? And there's a, there's a scar, a big scar, right across her forearm up here. She said, when I was a two-pound, six-ounce baby... She's 89 years old. I weighed two pounds, six ounces. The doctor delivered me by cesarean and he cut my arm. And the scar remains. Sins have a way of leaving scars. I don't know for sure what it was in David's mind. It could have been, you know what? David was a great king, but he was a terrible father. And it could be that Absalom... The chickens are coming home to roost. Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. Have they already been forgiven? Yes, once and for all. But yet the reality of dealing with those in its various facets, not by way of getting justified all over again, but by way of settling those has to be readdressed. I tell you what, I know more about the sins of my youth now than I knew about the sins of my youth when I was a youth. You know what I mean? I get it now. And I do blush. Those are the things Paul says of which I am now ashamed. And when I say ashamed, I mean I blush. But they're forgiven. And every time that thought comes to me, Oh, Larry, remember when you were 10 years old? And I go, yes, I certainly do. But I remember the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all sin. That's what I remember. I have to pray about that. Lord, forgive me. You get the point? We pray about things that we already have because we need the application. And the thing about praying for forgiveness, you know, aren't we already justified and forgiven? And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us? Absolutely. Why did John then say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. 
He's speaking to Christians and he's saying, Christians, confess your sins because the just God will forgive you your sins. Why do you need to be forgiven? I've already been pardoned in the court of God's law once and for all. That's forensic forgiveness. Now you need familial forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's just like every day, brothers. Hopefully not every day, but it is a routine thing for us to say to our wives, hey, I blew it. I was wrong. I sinned. Please forgive me. I have her forgiveness, but I must seek it. Thank you, dear. That's the way it is. That's the way men and women of faith pray. We're not so, quote unquote, manly and godly that we don't need to, quote, condescend, get on our knees, grovel and say, forgive me. I'm not talking about the groveling part, but I'm talking about the humility of the heart that says, I was wrong. I need help. Be my help. The present help in the time of need. Let me wrap all this up. Let me bring it down. Aren't these three petitions in particular for deliverance, for instruction and guidance and for forgiveness, aren't they things that the world in which you and I live really, really need so desperately, but have no idea that they do. That the world needs to be delivered. That they need to be taught the ways of truth and guided in it. And they need to be forgiven because they're not right with God. These are the things for which that we can and that we should. And I was so glad to hear uh, the brother pray for, you know, the world in which we live and for the work of the gospel in the world. There's a lot of work to done, a lot of forgiveness that yet needs to be experienced, a lot of deliverance, all these things. This encourages us on. These are the things that we need to pray for one another, that we pray for in the church, because we owe a debt of love, not only to the world, but we owe a debt of love to one another and to the church and to our our family and friends and so forth. And these are the kind of things that we can pray. Lord, deliver us. Lord, teach and guide us. Lord, forgive us. Is there really too much deliverance and too much instruction and too much forgiveness in the world that we really should have a whole lot less of that? Oh, what a rare thing they are. Therefore, let the people of God pray because we are men and women of faith. And of course, these are the things for which we pray for ourselves as well. So my brothers and sisters, I simply want to encourage you, lift up your soul. Like a David, a man of faith, you be a man or a woman of faith. And David wrote in another psalm, in the 123rd psalm, he says to you, I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall have mercy on us. Let's wait upon the mercy of God through prayer. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reading and the hearing and the explaining and the expounding of that word. But Lord, always we come back to you and say, this is not an exercise of man to be profitable, Lord, but it is of you. And so we ask, take your word and write it upon our hearts as you would have it, that we might live in its light. 
to the praise and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ is our prayer together. Amen.